Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a family of missionary servants, you know our, our desire, our, our focus as a family of missionary servants is to be the disciples that God has designed for us to be. And that through that, that we would be able to guide people towards discovering life in Jesus Christ. So... Today we're going to be kind of thinking through a little bit about what it means to have a sustainable call of service. We're going to be a family of missionary servants that we function collectively as a family on mission for Jesus. And by doing that, we serve the world from our, our, our closest neighbor to the farthest nations. That's the idea. That's the central focus that we have as a gathering of followers of Jesus. And so what does it look like for that to be sustainable? What does it look like for that to be able to be maintained what does it look like for that kind of heartbeat? Because when you set yourself up for that kind of life, I just want you to know you're setting yourself up for a life of challenge. When you set yourself up fully believing that Jesus is better, you are setting yourself up for a life full of challenge. You're going to be going to the places that Jesus would go. You're going to be living your life in a way that Jesus would live. You're not only going to be dedicating yourself to the things that Jesus did, you're also going to be dedicating yourself to doing them for the reasons that Jesus did them. That's going to be a life of sacrifice. That's a life of service. We would dedicate ourselves to a life of service because Jesus said himself that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so for those of us that have been ransomed, for those of us who have been bought with the price, that we are no longer our own. We now live a life of service to the world. Jesus was incarnated to us to serve us, and now he has habitated within us for us now to be incarnated to the world. In the same way that the Father sent him, so he has now sent us. And so we do the things that Jesus did for the same reasons that Jesus did them, the same motives, the same manner in which Jesus did them. So we're setting ourselves up for a life of challenge that is shown by the life of Jesus, that is shown by those who followed Jesus, whose shoulders we stand on today. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that have gone before us, displayed what it looks like to live a life that is of challenge. We've discovered and recognized that the lifestyle of the Christian is a life of service to the world. We know these things, but what happens when our desires don't match this knowledge? When you woke up this morning and your house was a lot colder than you expected it to be, did you feel at the base when your feet touched the floor and your feet were actually cold? (laughs) Did you actually think, I want to serve today? When your bank account, as you went into your mobile app and you look at it and it's a lot lower than you thought it should be and there are some negative signs next to the number that you expected it to be, did you feel like 
serving him today. When you find out there's a sickness in your own body or in your family member's body, did you feel like serving him today? When you thought the deal was going to go through or you thought an advancement in your occupation was going to happen and it didn't happen, did you feel like serving him then? When the person that you trusted with your heart decided to not be a good steward of your heart's affections, did you feel like serving him then? How does a heart of service in a world full of pain and sorrow and agony and challenge and difficulty, how do we sustain a level of heart of servitude in the midst of those realities? Because those are the realities. I just said things to you that I know happen in people's lives this week. That's the realities of things. And there's a whole other set of challenges of living a heart of servitude when we live, when we have abundance and seasons of abundance. There's also happen. So how, how do we maintain a level of consistency and sustainability in this most essential function of a family of missionary servants? How do we do this? What do we do when what we know is what we're supposed to do doesn't match how we feel? The danger when that happens is we end up serving out of obligation and not out of enjoyment in Jesus. And there are times and days, even seasons sometimes, where we just do what we know we're supposed to do because it's what we're supposed to do. But over a long period of time, that reservoir, it begins to pull from the reservoir, and if there's nothing flowing into the reservoir, eventually we start operating out of a place of bankruptcy and out of a place of abundance. We end up offering others the dregs of our life and not the abundance of the life of Jesus. You see, before God issues a call to serve him, he will reveal himself in a very clear way. In a very clear way. For example, with the disciples, we've studied when we're going through the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 2, if he first called them to be with him and then to go and preach in his name. Come and see me, understand me, figure me out, understand what it is that I do and for the reasons that I do them, and then you go preach in my name. And then once again to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, before he tells them to go into all the world, gives them the kind of the final like direction as to what they're to give their lives to, what we're supposed to give our lives to. He makes a statement to the disciples then and to us as followers of Jesus today. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He wants to be really, really clear about who he is before we go into all the nations. It's a very clear view of him. He reveals himself in a very, very clear way. For the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, he shows up in a, in a really powerful way on, on the road. And, and, and Paul's reaction to him is, at the time his name was Saul. He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Though he was blind, he was, Jesus still revealed himself to him in a very clear way. It was so clear that it took his sight. 
And today, the passage that we're going to take a look at, and this is all through the Scriptures. You can take a look at this, and you can find this all throughout the Scriptures. That, But just before God tells someone to do something for him, he will reveal himself in a very clear way. We see this with, with Mary. We see this with Moses, with Joshua. It's very clear descriptions of an unveiling of who God is prior to him asking one of his followers to do something for him. So if you will, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look and spend time kind of looking at a specific type of, of revelation that he gives to Isaiah. And we'll stand as we honor the reading of, of God's Word. If you're turning to Isaiah, you can probably find it pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. We're going to be reading the first eight verses in Isaiah chapter 6. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So it's describing the scene. This is what's happening. This is what's been, Isaiah has been called into heaven. He's going to have the privilege of kind of seeing just what is happening Continually and regularly. It's what's happening right now, even as we are standing and reading about it here on this side of eternity, on that side of eternity. We're getting a picture as to what is taking place. Attending him were the mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to him with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it, and said, See, your, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom shall, uh, Who should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. So, Father, we just position ourselves today as receivers of your word. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it rightly divides bone from marrow. We thank you that it's never going to return void, always accomplishing its purposes. We thank you that it helps a young man to stay pure. We thank you that the word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We thank you that it helps us to know what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right, so that man or woman of God will be fully equipped for every good work. We thank you that it's a mirror to our soul. We thank you we cannot lie. It's a clear reflection as to who we really are. And so will it change us today? Will you use the scriptures and even the words from this foolish man that you would use these words to transform our life so that we can be the people that you designed for us to be, the bride that says that the groom is worthy? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. There was a day in the life of our church where every Friday night was taken up 
by a really important event known as Church League Softball. And I just want you to know, in the Discover Church's day, the Discover Church Dingoes were a pretty amazing softball team. We would show up on these fields on Friday nights, and, and other churches would tremble. They would see us coming, and they would be like, man, I don't know what we're going to do today. These guys are, are, are studly. They are fantastic. And they were right. We were. We were really, really, really good. Um, and then many of us got older, and we married, and we had kids, and Friday nights became consumed with bottles and diapers and not as much with church league softball. But one of the things that happened is we, we were, the, the way this league was broken up is we had, like, there's the A League, which was, like, the guys that this is what they give their life to doing. They play Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And, they, they get nice. and then there was the B League, which was, like, actual churches that actually put together teams and would, you know, so they're made up of all of us has-beens kind of thing. And... And so we, one season, uh, we went, we, we went undefeated, and we beat everybody like 10-run rule. Like, we absolutely smoked them. The dingoes were on fire. I mean, we were just so incredibly good. It was amazing. We had the best fans. They were doing cheers, you know, on the stands, and they were uh, poster boards, and uh, had a lot, of, a lot of fun out there. And then, so we thought we were a pretty big deal. Like, we thought we had... We thought we had it figured out. Like, we thought, man, okay, so bring on A-League. Like, let's, let's go. So we, we move up. We got promoted, okay, into the A-League. And when we get out there, and the first game, we lose by, like, 12 runs. <laughs> we used to be in the, like, we sit in the wrong dugout. Like, what happened? And, and the, the next game, we lost again by, like, 15 runs. The next game, we lost by, like, 10 runs. All of a sudden, we, kinda, we moved up onto a level where we recognized we just didn't belong. We were happy to go back and be relegated back to the B-League the following week in which we begin to dominate once again. Kinda, it's, it's not a whole lot dissimilar for, from what Isaiah just experienced that we just read about. Isaiah was a really good guy. Isaiah was someone who had a call of God on his life. He was going to be a, he was a representative, of the, going to be called by God to be a representative of the voice of God. He's a lot like you guys. You know, that in their workplace, uh, in their neighborhoods, their friends, probably a really good, good person. That people respected them, thought highly of them. If they had a trouble or problem, they'd probably come to them and be able to be encouraged, know that someone would be there for them. And then Isaiah got called up to like the A-League he got called up to a place where very quickly he began to realize that he just didn't belong. In comparison to other people, Isaiah fared pretty well. But when he saw God clearly, it enabled him to see himself clearly as well. There were some things that were going on in his life that, pre- that prevented him from experiencing all that God had for him as a servant of the king. This clarity was essential to the life of service that was, that was, I think, was being called into, this life of service that was ahead of him. So we see in verses 1 through 7 of the passage that we just read, we see that God's presence is clarifying. We see ourselves real, not for what we want others to perceive us as, but who we really are, we, we enter into God's presence. And let's be honest, sometimes that is the reason why we don't go to the Scriptures. That's sometimes why we, why we resist community, biblical community. Sometimes the reason why we go and surround ourselves, even with teaching, biblical teaching, that is a little more me-centered than God-centered. We're going to put ourselves in a position that allows us to be comfortable with what we see without having to see what God sees. 
And that's a challenging reality. But see, God's presence creates proper order. And proper order produces proper actions. What happens with Isaiah is he very quickly begins to see who God is. He begins to see who he is. And that produces worship. That is an immediate response to seeing who God is. When our band communicates these thoughts and these scriptures and it's to music and all of a sudden you see them kind of lose themselves. They know you're there, but they really don't care that you're there. They're moving to a place of worship where they're just displaying God's worth. And in doing so, that catapults us to a new place too. And we begin to see, the idea is just to clearly see who God is. When I stand up here and I want to communicate the scriptures to you, I, don't, I want you to see past me and I want you to see who he is. Because what happens when you see who he is, is there's something inside of us that just produces what we're supposed to do, which is worship. It's the natural result of seeing the supernatural God for who he really is. And Isaiah just gets this unfiltered experience, this clarifying moment as he's ushered into God's presence. And he worships. The way he records this, he says, he sees him sitting on a lofty throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Are you driving this imagery? Attending him were mighty seraphim. There's these angelic beings. He describes them as having six wings. Two Wings they covered their face, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew. And these mighty seraphim just began to chant. The way I image it and kind of see it is the center of the room. This is just my imagery. But the center of the room, you have God on his throne, and the train is just filling, the train of his robe is just filling all aspects of the room, and almost there's just a smoke. That is just filling the deal. And on one side of the room is seraphim. And on the other side of the room is seraphim. And it's going back and forth, declaring only thing they can say in the midst of God's presence. And that is just that he is holy. At a University of North Carolina chapel in Chapel Hill, like a Tar Heel fan, you know, in the middle of the, like the cheerleaders, and they're like, tar! And then they're like, heels! And they're like, you know, tar! And then, Heels and tar, heels. It was just like holy, holy, but no orchestration necessary because because they're in God's presence and that's the only thing they know to say. These beings were created for worship. They were created to be able to be in the midst of God's presence. So two wings are covering their face and two wings are covering their feet and two wings are... They can't even touch the ground in which the, the, the throne is, is, is placed on. Been ushered in and seeing something so incredibly special, you realize, I don't belong here. So the whole earth is filled with his glory. It spills out from this temple. It spills out out of heaven. It spills out of wherever it is that Isaiah is caught up in. And it just spills out all over everything that God's created. And then Isaiah turns to himself and realizes, like, I'm out of my league. I don't belong here.
So not only does God's presence clarifying for who he is, who God is, it's also for who we are. The action for recognizing who God is is, the, is worship, and recognizing who, who we are is repentance. Seraphim are chanting holy, and there's smoke, and, and robe, and throne, and God's presence. And then there's just Isaiah, this, this guy with faults, this good guy. He's a good guy. But he's not this. He's not who God is. He's not holy. His response is, it's all over. <laughs> like, it's just over. Like, I am clearly out of, I'm outclassed. I don't belong in this place. It's all over. I am doomed. He said, I am a sinful man. And he describes his sin. He says, I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. But that's kind of what happens when we are in the midst of God's presence. Isaiah begins to get an insight to who he is and to who God is. And that is enough and that changes everything. See, in God's presence, Isaiah sees himself correctly, but God doesn't leave him that way. He does, God's desire is not just in the midst of his presence to clarify all of what we're not. Whenever you're in this moment and we get, we get this awareness that something is not right, that that's called conviction. And conviction many times gets a bad rap because it can produce some guilt and shame in our life. But the, the God uses that guilt and that shame to bring us to a recognition that he is better than we are. And he reveals that to us because he's saying, come closer, I have more for you. He's not saying, you don't belong Remove yourself. He's saying, I want you to come closer. And therefore, these are things that have to be resolved in order for you to experience the life that I have for you. He's saying, come closer. But the closer we get, the more we see stuff that's just not right. And we get to confess it and deal with it and move forward. And then we get closer and we see there's more stuff. There's just this awareness that we get closer to who God is designed for us to be. The more stuff that's present within our life that's not consistent with who God is. Be scared when you get to the day where you don't see those things anymore. That either means you have stayed in the same place where you have been cleansed or you have gone backwards. You've gone further into the darkness and out of the light. And in doing so, it gives you room to be able to be who you want to be. The clarifying power of God's presence is no longer dealing with the deep places of our motives and our, our behavior. It's no longer moving us into doing the things that Jesus would do for the reasons that Jesus would do them. And now we're in control, and he's no longer in control. Isaiah sees himself correctly as a man with filthy lips from a people of filthy lips, but God doesn't leave him that way. A seraphim, a moment, upon the moment of his repentance, a seraphim brings coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips with it, and says, now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Let's be really clear, it wasn't the seraphim's capacity to be able to declare that. Notice where the, the, the coal came from. It came from the altar of God. 
And notice where the coal was placed. The coal was placed at the, at, at the location of where he said there was something that was unclean. In God's presence, Isaiah was moved from a dirty-mouthed man, from a dirty-mouthed people, to a forgiven man with guilt removed, with a call to speak for God. And so clarity of what to do follows an intimate awareness of who he is. Clarity of what to do follows an intimate awareness of who he is. Isaiah drew close and was made clean. From this place of intimacy with God, he was able to overhear a question that God was saying. As you read this, it doesn't seem like this is a question specifically geared to Isaiah. It seems as if it's just something that was just going out from the throne room of God. Just, just going out. He says, whom shall, who should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? In this broad call that just seems to be going out, Isaiah hears this. He just can't help but volunteer. He says, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Isaiah had drawn close and in doing so was willing to do anything for his Lord. This is also reflected in Psalm 37 in verse 4. It says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. This is a very misquoted verse so many times. And all I have to do is be happy in God and he's going to give me what I want. No, what happens is we delight ourselves in the Lord and the things that we want our heart's desires become consistent with his. He changes our heart's desires. And he places what's natural for us to delight in that's consistent with his character into our hearts and lives so that we now delight in the very same things that he delights in. Another way of putting this is that a byproduct of being close to and enjoying God is that I will care about the things that he cares about. I will naturally care about the things he cares about because I delight in the things that he's delighting in. Because my nature has been transformed. It's been changed by being in the midst of his presence. But to some degree what that does is the move in, and this is one of the things that I think sidelines a lot of disciples of Jesus as we begin to make progressive movement, is that we begin to realize that we're not the center of things any longer. And that gets really difficult. That takes on different layers. Many times we'll naturally and with great receptivity receive forgiveness from God for salvation. And we want him as Savior, but many times we resist him as Lord. Because let's just be honest, we want to be Lord. And we don't want a king. We don't want a king. We want, we want to be king. The whole democratic deal. We kicked out King George III because he was going to give us representation or taxation without representation and all that kind of We don't want a king. 
but you need a king. He's so much better at being king than we are. So much better. We need him to be Lord. We need him to oversee, to be the ruler and director of our lives. In my devotions this week, I was reading, I read in My Most First Highest by Oswald Chambers, and this is a quote that was in there that I thought I'd share with you. It's challenging to me, and I hope it will be challenging to you as well. Is the one aim of the call of God is the satisfaction of God. You could almost stop there. It's not the satisfaction of me, like it's not about me. It's the satisfaction of God. It's not, not, to a, not a call to do something for him. It's about the satisfaction of God, right? And he goes on to say, We're not sent to battle for God, but to be used by God in his battlings. It places the, the celebration, the responsibility, the celebration of the victory in the battle and responsibility for the battle itself where it's supposed to be placed in the king's hands. It's about the satisfaction of God. I just want to confess to you, I have a tendency to have a problem with God being about his satisfaction. I do. I have a hard time with that because I want to be about my satisfaction. I just do. I confess it. I realize that I want life to be about me. See, I have a tendency to, to, to have a problem with God being about his satisfaction when I care too deeply about my own. There's going to be a conflict between what I want for my life and what God wants for my life. But the more I am in the midst of his presence, the more I recognize who I am and who he is, then the more my delight in the things that he delights in is a natural byproduct of my life to care about the things that he cares about. And to be satisfied with the things that he brings into my life. The closer I am to him, the more I will trust and even suffer for his call. It's important that we notice the order of God's call to Isaiah. First thing, just kind of, re, just kind of backing through these, first, these, these eight verses. One, Isaiah is permitted access to God's presence. He's given access. He's given entrance. He's allowed to be able to see God for who he really is. And in doing so, the natural thing was Isaiah draws close to God. We see God clearly. That is something that's going to happen is we're just going to draw close to him. Isaiah's response to being close to God is repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin and guilt being removed. See, the thing is, there are some behaviors that you can change yourself, but you cannot remove your guilt. You cannot forgive yourself. You can change your patterns of behavior and maintain control, but you cannot experience forgiveness and the removal of guilt and still be in control. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in the release. 
In doing so, the third thing happens, which God issues a call uh, to go for him. And then very quickly, the fourth thing, Isaiah just volunteers. There was no compulsion necessary. There was no guilt trip. There was no, like, like, neat story that had to be told. There was no, like, you know, commercial about kids that are dying in other countries in order for to get, like, that wasn't necessary. That really sappy music behind it. and There's no compulsion necessary. He was just waiting for the opportunity. He heard of a vacancy and an opportunity to go and to represent God. And he was just like, yeah, like, let me do that. Point me in the right direction. Is there anything else in my life that I could live for? Like, I get to go and represent you. Like, yes, send me. I can see him in the corner as the kid, you know, just like, you know, just here I am. Like, what else could I possibly do? Like, send me. Ooh, you know, pick me. Almost like off in the distance, you have the, you know, the seraphim, and they're hovering around doing their thing, and the train of the robe is already filling the temple, so it can't be a lot of room for Isaiah. But he's just like, maybe his hand is just popping over the train of the robe in the corner of the room, and it's just like, here I am, send me. After clearly, clearly seeing God for who he is, how could Isaiah not go for him? He was ecstatic to go. If we take an inventory of just our spiritual journeys, there's probably points in life where we'd say, you know what? Like, I was willing to go and do stuff for him then, but now, I don't know, life just seems so complicated. I'm now married, I got kids, there's financial things, there's challenges, there's bills, or, you know, there's no more kids in the home now, and I'm kind of on our own now, and I don't know, physically not doing as well, or whatever it is. And we just bring all that complexity into things. And we begin to like take an uncommon call and make it common. We take this supernatural relationship with God and we make it natural. We have this extraordinary opportunity placed before him, but we settle for the ordinary things of our life. When the basis of all of this just comes in because there's God and there's man, and God is holy and man is not, and we have an opportunity to be cleansed and be set free from what was previously filthy and to be empowered to be able to go and represent him to a people that don't know him. The flow of of this call on Isaiah's life is ordered. It keeps priorities in the right place. Keeps the vertical relationships at the centerpiece and the horizontal relationships the secondary. Love God first, love man second. I'm able to love man because I'm loved by God and I love God. This unique relationship Isaiah had with God was something that was that was potential and available in, this, in the Old Testament this way. In the New Testament. As a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives and dwells inside of you. You don't have to be called to another place to experience the presence of God. The presence of God resides inside of you. And you also get to experience and see it in the lives of other followers of Jesus. You get to see the beauty of God being fleshed out in their capacity to serve, and their capacity to give, and their capacity to, to love. You get to enjoy different aspects of who God is. 
And we have direct access to the Father. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to Christians in a city called Ephesus. He says, Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. You've been granted permission to come to the Father through the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done. So will you draw close? For those of you who have been finding yourself distant, there hasn't been a moment recently where you sense that conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, where the lights have become a little more dim and maybe even really honest, like there's been, there's, there's darkness. You're only one honest prayer away from a right relationship with God. You can enter back in because you have direct access to God. Will you draw close? Your guilt can be removed and your sin forgiven. The key to being able to have an ongoing, sustainable, consistent heart of service to the world, which we know we're supposed to do, but even when we don't feel like it, is to remain consistent within the presence of God because it creates the proper order that allows for everything to flow as, it, as, it's, as it's supposed to flow. Byproduct of being close to God and enjoying Him is going to be that I care about the things that He cares about. It changes how I feel. When my feelings match what I know all of a sudden. Like We have a really powerful, powerful opportunity. This world needs for us to do that. To declare the greatness of our God. So I want us to do today, the band is going to come up and they're going to create an environment for us and then after that we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a family today. We're going to celebrate exactly what it is that he has done for us and continues to do for us. I just want you to draw close. There's nothing, no specific way to do that, nothing tricky. The hard work's already been done. I mean, you have direct access. If you draw close to him, the great promise is that he's going to draw close to you. Like there's going to be this return that's, that's present because he's already there. Maybe to confess some of the complexities Similar to the song we sang earlier, that Jesus is better, like it's better than all these things. It's just, life's gotten so complex, and we justify it with all of life's complexities. As if God can't figure out a way to provide for us in the midst of these things. And in my presence, I recognize He has the ability to provide for everything that He gives order to. He can even provide for my disappointment, and things don't turn out the way that I hope they would. I think somebody needs to hear that today.
So Father, we just posture ourselves again. We've received the scriptures today. We've received your word. God breathed upon us. So now we just ask that you would surround us. We just want to just throw ourselves into the seas of your grace. Ask that you would, as we confess, be faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wrongdoing. That your presence would clarify your leading in our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.